when, when your word is, is challenging and, and difficult for us to understand. And yet, even in those times, Lord, you speak to your people very clearly. And I pray this morning that we would understand what you are sharing with us here today. May we not only understand, Lord, but may we in Christ's return. I think it's in those times when, when people feel the need to sort of lift their eyes from the things of this world because the things in this world begin to get shaky. They become uncertain, uh, very difficult and stuff. And, and people, uh, even Christians, begin to recognize that maybe they've put too much hope in the things of the world and instead they turn their eyes upon their greater hope, their only hope, which is Jesus Christ in his coming again. And there may be some of you today who have been feeling like that. As you look around in the world today that we live in, there's you know financial uncertainty with inflation and all the things that are going on. There's, there's wars that, that are happening. Uh, evil is being called good in our society and good is being called evil. And you might think, Lord Jesus, just take me home. Come back again and let's just end this all. And that may be where you're at this morning and the things you're struggling with. And our passage this morning speaks to those things. And I want us to look at it this morning as we uh, try to cover this entire chapter this morning. Now, I, for those of you that have not been with us, Jesus is in chapter 12 has been in the temple. And the religious leaders have been coming to him and testing him. And he even made an observation about the widow and, and how she gave everything. And now we see that Jesus is leaving the temple. And, and as he's walking out, one of the disciples, and I think it's interesting that Mark doesn't record who it is. You know, on the Mount of Olives, he tells you exactly the disciples that asked Jesus the question, but he doesn't define, he doesn't identify this disciple, so I guess we don't need to know. But this disciple looks up at the, the temple and the buildings and he goes, this is just magnificent. And, and I wish I had time this morning to describe to you the beauty of the temple. You know, here again, if you want something to do this afternoon, get on the internet and, and, and Google that and, and see what the temple was like. I mean, the stones and the temple, some of the stones were so large, they were like the size of a boxcar on a train. They were just huge. And they were covered with gold and, and just gorgeous. And this disciple is talking about that and Jesus says, yeah, there's going to be a day when all this is going to be gone. When not one stone is going to be on top of the other. Which would have just been incredible for these disciples to hear. And so they, Jesus and his disciples continue up to the Mount of Olives, which was nearby. And uh, as Peter, James, John, and Andrew are with Jesus and they're just sort of alone, then they just sort of bring this topic up. Hey, Jesus, could you tell us more about this? When is all this going to happen? And Jesus begins to explain what has now been called the Olivet Discourse in verses 5 through 37 here in Mark chapter 13. And, and while Jesus explains himself and sort of explains these events, the things that he says are not easy necessarily to understand. Um, R. Kent Hughes, who's a, a commentator, he's a, he's a preacher, he said it very well about Mark 13. He said, the fact is, we have yet to find a scholar who can perfectly unravel the naughty problems of the Olivet Discourse. In other words, guys, this is beyond us in, in some ways. It's not that we can't understand anything, but it, it is sort of a, a quite an interesting thing. If you've ever had a ball of yarn that's got twisted and got all knotted and you try to get it all untwisted, 
you know, you think you, you, oh yeah, now I'm getting it. Oh no, that's a dead end. So then you work on another string and it can be very difficult. And that's sort of what we see here. Um, and that's, that's sometimes the nature of prophecies where sometimes they, they end up raising more questions than they answer. And we don't like that, do we? We sort of want a crystal clear explanation. Lord, just tell me the way it's going to be in history, how it's going to unfold. That's what I want to see. And, uh, but here again, uh, Kent Hughes uh, sort of encourages us in this. And he says, we need to take to heart Chesterton's uh, words. He said, it is only the fool who tries to get the heavens inside of his head and not unnaturally his head burst. In other words, what he's saying is, you know, it, you know, here God is revealing these great truths that are so, in one sense, beyond us. And, you know, it's just sort of a foolish thing to think that we're going to be able to take all these things in and our head not burst. He said, the wise man is content to get his head inside the heavens. In other words, we may not be able to understand everything that God has shared, and it may be too much for us, but it doesn't mean that we can't look into those things. And, and understand them to some degree. And that's what we want to do this morning as we look at our text. Now, one of the analogies that has always helped me when it comes to prophecy is, is to think of that of a mountain range. Now, I know that Kansas is not a mountainous state, okay? We do have a mountain somewhere, but we're not a mountainous state. But we live close to Colorado, so most of you have been to Colorado or maybe other parts of the country, and you have seen mountain ranges. And one of the things is you look at a mountain range is it looks very different from a distance than it does when you get up close when 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 you're far away you see these different peaks and they look just really close to each other but then when you get right up to them you might discover that those mountain peaks are actually miles and miles and miles apart or or maybe you think you see one mountain peak in the distance but as you get closer you realize there's two mountain peaks because one was covering up the other. And so perspective is everything. And, and sometimes looking at two different things from far away, they can actually look like they are closer than they actually are. And, and I just bring that up because here we have prophecies about the end times. And, and this prophecy is in one sense about the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And in another sense, it's about the tribulation leading up to the end when Christ returns. And from our perspective, as we, we read this passage to a certain degree, it seems that Jesus is bringing these two events together in close proximity to each other. That's what it appears like as we read the text in the most simplistic way. But and yet we know from history that the temple was destroyed back in 70 AD, and yet Christ has not come back yet. And it's been almost 2,000 years. Well, look with me, if you would, back to Matthew 24. Matthew 24 and verse 3. Uh, this is the parallel passage to um, this text and this question that we read in Mark. Only Matthew records a little bit more of an expanded question on the part of these four disciples. Let me read it. It says, And he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And then Jesus gives them an answer. Now, you notice in, in Matthew's account that in one breath, the disciples are asking about the destruction of the temple. And yet in another breath, they're also asking Jesus about his second 
coming and the end of the age. And it seems like in the minds of the disciples, these two events go together. And, and Jesus, as he answers that, he though implies that this won't be the case. That, um, and that's why Jesus doesn't answer just the question about the temple destruction, but also about the signs and the events that will happen at the end of time. And so Jesus speaks of all of these things together, even though they don't happen together necessarily. So I think we have to be careful as we come to this text, not to think that everything prophesied here is, was fulfilled back in 70 AD when the temple was destroyed. But at the same time, neither should we view all of this as thing, are things that are still in the future. Rather, we see here Jesus giving us different signs and telling us that the end is near. Now, before we look at these signs, I, I want to share just a, a few more things about prophecy that I think will be helpful for us as we delve into this text a little bit. We have, the one thing we have to understand about prophecy is, is that it gives us some information about the future, but it doesn't necessarily tell us every detail. And, and that's something that I think oftentimes we, we forget. And so we're trying to piece together all these different things that we read, not understanding that some of the details are not there. And this is even more the case when we get to the prophecies in the form of apocalyptic genre, like Revelation or the end of the book of Daniel. And while Mark's uh, gospel here on chapter 13 isn't all apocalyptic genre, it, it, it does contain some of that. But with apocalyptic genre, you have symbols and images, you have numerous scriptural allusions that point to some event, but they often are more like parables, using examples to give us a glimpse of certain details about the future. So in one sense, they're sort of like snapshots. So the book of Revelation gives us a picture of this, and then of this, and then of this. And what we don't always recognize is that maybe sometimes that picture is the same thing as that picture, but it's from a different perspective. We want to look at it as a video camera, as a, as a movie, as a recording that explicitly lays out all of those events. But that's not what God always does. You see, when God gives us prophecy, he gives us just enough so that we can live by faith. Even if we don't have the full perspective yet to fully understand how everything works. And, and if I could, let me just give you uh, an, an example that you're very familiar with. And that is the coming of the Messiah. It, when the Messiah was uh, prophesied in the Old Testament, Jesus was said to be both a, a glorious king, but a suffering servant. Now, could you imagine being an Old Testament Jew looking forward, looking at that mountain range with all those peaks, and you're seeing suffering servant, glorious king, and you're trying to figure out how does all this fit together? And you don't have a movie that just shows you every all the details, but you just have snapshots that sort of point that out. Well, as you then get to our perspective where these events are behind us, we're past these things. We can look back and we can see, oh, Jesus is going to have two comings. The first coming, he comes as the suffering servant. The second coming, he will come as the glorious king. And so, you know, we have more details. We see the prophecies more clearly. And so, you know, even in these Old Testament prophecies, God gave his people enough for having a real faith in the coming Messiah that they could live by faith in that expectation 
uh, even being content with the mysteries that God had revealed to them. And that's what's going on in Mark 13 for us. That there's enough here to give us a glorious hope, even though we may not understand all the details. Uh, believe me, there's been enough books written on speculation about what the different details mean and people trying to pinpoint exactly what's going on. And, and they often get into trouble because they forget the perspective of prophecy and that sometimes these things are like mountains at a distance and, and they don't take that into account because prophecy gives us some information about the future, but it doesn't give us every detail. The, the point that I want to, that I'm, I guess that I'm trying to get across is this, that as we look at this passage, we need to be cautious. Uh, we must try to understand what it is that Jesus is telling us, but also why it is that he's telling us uh, what he's telling us. So what is he trying to convey to us? And, and also, I guess, implied in that, what is he not saying? But then also, why is he trying to tell us? And that reason is, is really important. I mean, even think like the book of Revelation. We oftentimes spill a lot of ink over and spend a lot of time studying, trying to figure out what. You know, what's going to come in the future? We want to figure out the book of Revelation. And that's not bad. That's, that's good to do that. But sometimes we put so little emphasis on why the book of Revelation was given to us. And the book of Revelation was given to encourage Christians to persevere amidst tribulation knowing that everything works out for good according to God's plan. And that could really help and encourage us in our, in our walk with the Lord. And so we need to keep that in mind as we dig into this passage today. First of all, we're going to look at what is Jesus seeking to tell us? And second of all, why is he seeking to tell us that? So what is Jesus telling us? Well, first, as we've said before, he's talking about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem and also about the signs of the end times and Christ's return. Now, what are these signs? Well, look, beginning in verse 6, he talks about some of these. First of all, he talks about religious deception and unrest. Religious deception and unrest. Uh, verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Now, we need to watch out for any who come in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, but are really false prophets or false Christ, people who are trying to deceive us. And verse 22 tells us that it's not possible for the elect to be deceived. And yet these false Christ will seek to deceive the elect. And certainly many in the church will be affected by this. People will be led astray out of the church to deception, lured away by even false signs and, and wonders, as, as Mark tells us in this chapter. And, and, you know, we've even seen the Antichrist being talked about in 1 John. But there's also political and social unrest in verses 7 and 8. Uh, and when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. So there's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. Kingdoms and peoples will fight against each other. We know that. Uh, that's what we've seen most of our lives, is it not? As a matter of fact, I, I, I wrote, read a statistic by William Durant. I'm not sure exactly who he is, but uh, he, he wrote, he said, War is one of the constants of history and has not diminished with civilization and democracy. In other words, 
As much as we think that we're advancing in humanity in terms of being civilized and, and having democracy and everything, it has not squelched war. War has continued to go on as much as ever. He goes on and he says this. He goes, in the last 3,421 years of recorded history, only 268 years have seen no war. Out of 3,421 years, 3,153 of those years, we have been in war in some way as humanity. That's a lot of war. So there's political, social unrest. There's also geological unrest. The end of verse 8, there will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. And so Jesus warns us of these things, even saying that the creation groans under the weight of sin while it awaits the restoration of the Lord's return. We don't have time this morning, unfortunately, to turn there, but Romans chapter 8, verses 9 through, or 19 through 22, talks about this very thing, how the creation groans and is waiting for the redemption of Christ. And so the signs uh, of religious unrest, political unrest, and even geological unrest are described at the end of verse 8 as the beginning of birth pains. It's, it's the start. But there's, of course, Old Testament references that compare the final judgment day of the Lord as a woman in labor. And Christ is just carrying over that imagery into this. And then he shares in verses 9 through 13 a sign that's specifically against Christians. This is a sign just for Christians, and that is the sign of persecution. We will be persecuted by governments and before religious leaders. Even our own families will persecute us, will turn us over uh, to be arrested and persecuted. And society in general will hate Christians. Look at verse 13, and, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. But, but Jesus says, in all of this, I want you to understand this as well. Not only will you be persecuted, but in all of this, you will also serve as my witnesses. Our persecution will be so that we can tell the world about Christ. We see that in verse 9. And then in verse 11, he says, but don't worry. The Holy Spirit is going to be the one that's going to be speaking through you. And so you will be able to stand up and to bear witness to who I am. Now, what, what is the goal of this? Why does... Why does Christ put his church through this? Well, look at verse 10. So that the gospel must first be preached to all nations. And that must be done before the end will come. And so these are all signs that the end is fast approaching. That these are the beginnings of the birth pains. And Jesus tells us that tribulation in the world, and especially for Christians, is a sign that the end is coming. And so as God extends his saving grace, as, as the church is faithful in preaching the gospel, and, and you see God's grace as people are coming to faith in Him, as God extends His saving grace through the church, it seems also that God lets up on His common grace and, and the restraining of wickedness of men towards His church. And all of this is heading faster and faster and faster towards the final judgment. Now, one thing I want to mention here with these signs is the signs in this chapter are really common to all ages, if you think about it. You know, for, for some of us, I think we're thinking about these signs and going, uh, you know, false prophets coming. Uh, let's see here. There's wars. There, there's earthquakes, famines, there, you know, persecution. Well, Pastor Rick, these, these have always been with us. 
You know, so how does this narrow things down for me to know when Christ is going to come? Well, that is the point, that these signs are common to all ages. And I think that's one reason why oftentimes, uh, no matter what generation you've been in, there has been somebody who has said, the Lord is coming soon. I'm old enough to remember in 1988, somebody wrote a book, 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming in 88. <laughs> Jesus didn't come in 88, but, you know, they, they were certain he was coming in 88. You know, and we oftentimes want to try to, to narrow those things down. But because these are common things, it's, 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 it's natural to think the end has arrived when we personally experience these things that Jesus talks about. Well, Jesus goes on and talks about one other thing, and that is the tribulation in verses 14 through 23. Before the final judgment, uh, uh, there will be this great tribulation. Verse 19 says that in those days there will be a tribulation greater than ever before and never like again. In verse 24, it suggests that this is the final event prior to Christ's return. If you look at verse 24, it says, but in those days... After the, that tribulation, then it talks about the sun darkening, the moon, the stars. And then it says in verse 26, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. If you look again at, at Mark's gospel, Mark 20, or Mark, excuse me, Matthew 24, 29, he actually inserts the word immediately. But in those days after the tribulation, immediately the sun will darken, the moon, the stars, and then Christ will return and and i think this is where some of the here's where it lies some of the difficulties in interpreting this prophecy you see part of this great tribulation seems to be clearly happened during the time of the destruction in jerusalem in 70 a.d as a matter of fact many commentators will refer to the abomination that causes desolation in verse 14 as the desecration of the temple when the Roman soldiers came into the cities and they had the idolatrous images of the emperor on their standards and, and they came into the temple, that was the, the desolation. But, uh, and, and there's no question that there are certain references here like fleeing to the mountains in Judea that would seem to describe that event in 70 A.D., and yet, the end didn't happen immediately afterwards. And the degree of the severity described here, this great tribulation, seems to be go beyond what was described in 70 AD. And because of that, many commentators believe, and I, I would agree with this, that the great tribulation has multiple fulfillments. It has multiple fulfillments. Now, that's, that's actually very typical of prophecy in the Bible. If you think about it, you think about the, the, the great day of the Lord when, when God will bring his judgment and when prophets like Joel uh, prophesied that. Joel 2.30, I can't remember. Joel 2. Anyway, he prophesied the, the great day of the Lord and God's judgment. And there was a sense in which that was fulfilled in the day of the prophet. But there's another sense in which that points to the final judgment when God will judge all of humanity. Or, or think about last week and the week before as we talked about uh, Christ, you know, saying that, uh, that the Messiah uh, was coming from the line of David and he would be the son of David and yet he would be greater than David. Well, how could that be? So we looked at passages like Sam, 
2 Samuel chapter 7 that describes, you know, what the son of David would be like. And we talked about how Solomon fulfilled part of those things. But ultimately, all of those things were fulfilled in Jesus as the Messiah and coming. And so that scripture does that quite often. And so I believe that that is what is actually happening here, that initially this great tribulation was fulfilled in 70 AD, but it's looking to be fulfilled in one final climactic tribulation just prior to Christ's return. Now, I know that's sort of a, a quick overview of, of a number of the events, but the reality, as I said, is there's been a lot of books that have been written about these that could go into a lot of detail. Unfortunately, a lot of these uh, have different takes on what these things mean and the signs mean. But I think, in one sense, that's part of the problem. We need to see what is clear and accept that God hasn't chosen to reveal to us every detail of the future. And yet, there is a lot for us to see here. We should then see that these are signs that the end is near. And he talks about the very end of verses 24 through 27. And he says, when Jesus comes back, people, it will not be a surprise. Everyone will know that the end is happening. Everyone, every human being who's ever existed will be witness of that great day. That's a day of judgment and a day of glory. And he describes it in cosmic terms with the sun darkening and the moon darkening and the stars following and stuff. And as I said, that... That is uh, imagery of the Old Testament, prophetic imagery of the day of the Lord found in Joel chapter 2. And also it speaks of, uh, uh, from Daniel chapter 7, that he will come in the clouds with glory and power. And so that will be the end. There won't be any, uh, any guesswork. And at that time, then those who do not belong to Christ will stand before him as their judge. And they will be judged for the sins that they committed against God. And the heavens and the earth themselves will pass away. And that they'll be transported into something new and better. And Jesus will gather in all of this people who have been dispersed throughout the earth. We see in verse 27. So that's what's going to happen. That's what Jesus is telling us. Now why is Jesus telling us? Well, to understand why he's telling us this, you have to understand what he's not telling us. And what he's not telling us is a way to calculate the specific date or time for his return. There should, we should not write a book on the 88 reasons why Jesus is coming in 88. You, you know, if you look at verse 32, it says, But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. You know, if you, as you look at these signs, other than the destruction of the temple, these other signs are rather generic predictions. And so you're not going to be able to sort of narrow down the time to say Jesus is going to come back in 50 years or 100 years or, or 1,000 years. Well, then what is the point that he's trying to make? Well, Jesus tells us in verses 28 and 29. He says, look at the fig tree. He said, you, you want to know when it's summertime? Look at a fig tree. A fig tree will get tender and it will begin to bear leaves. And then you know that the summer is coming. And he said in verse 29, and so it is with the Son of Man. And uh, that's why he's telling us these things ahead of time. 
that we have these signs to know that the end is near and that Jesus could come back at any moment. Now, I can only imagine what some of you are thinking. Any moment? It's been 2,000 years. What do you mean, any moment? But I think we have to understand this nearness in, from the perspective of redemptive history, right? It has to. All of redemptive history is looking forward to Christ, right? And, and Christ's coming. And so Christ does come, and then after that is Pentecost, with the spreading of the gospel, not only to the Jews, but even to the Gentiles as well. And so that's the next sort of uh, uh, part of redemptive history. And then beyond that, the next event of redemptive history is the return of Christ. So we do live in between Pentecost and the return of Christ. And so we are living in these last days. And that's what these signs are to signal. People, we live in the last days. Christ could come back at any time. But Jesus says more, really, than just sort of setting the time frame for where we live. Uh, as, as he talks about these signs, you see that in this chapter, it's just littered with commands. There are lots of different commands. From verses 5 through 37, there's 19 imperatives, 19 commands. Now, that's a lot for Scripture. And so, uh, as a matter of fact, there's sort of a structure uh, regarding these commands. Uh, that we see in this chapter. It's like Jesus issues a command and then he gives a reason. And that reason is usually tied into one of these signs. Uh, let me give you an example. In verse 5, it says, See that no one leads you astray. Now, the ESV is a little weak there. See that no one leads you astray. Uh, other translations maybe are a little more clear. It says, Take heed, no one leads you astray. That's a command. See that no one leads you astray. And then the reason for many will come in my name. In other words, he's saying that these false prophets, these false Christs will come to lead us astray. Or look at verse 33. He says, be on guard. Keep awake. That's the command. For you do not know when the time will come. And throughout this chapter, there's a command that's given with a reason. And usually that reason is the sign or something that points to the future. And you're going, okay, Pastor Rick, so what? What does that mean? Why is that so important? Well, what it means is that Jesus is telling us about the future so that we will have the appropriate response when the future comes, when we encounter the things that he says. The emphasis is on the response. This isn't a chapter about calculating when Christ is going to come back. It's a chapter about vigilance, about standing firm. And, and isn't that what we see? Look at verse 34. Uh, he tells another parable about a servant being entrusted by his master to what? To wait and to watch. To wait and to watch. And the servant was to guard the front door when the master leaves on his long journey. And he is the whole time supposed to wait and to watch so that he can let the master back in when he gets back. But he doesn't know when he's coming back. So he was to be vigilant on the watch because he doesn't know when his master will return. And that's why most of the commands in this chapter are commands like, keep awake, be on your guard, be prepared. So why is Jesus telling us that? 
The reason Jesus tells us all about this future tribulation is so that when the future begins to unfold, brothers and sisters, we won't be surprised. You know, I was, I was thinking about uh, with our kids, and I think I've used this illustration before, but with our kids, when they got to be around seven, eight, nine years old, we would tell them about puberty. And you'd say, okay, why did you do that, Pastor Rick? Well, you know, that's some major changes that happen in your body when you hit puberty, okay? And for a kid, those could be scary things. And so we would sit down, and my wife would talk with the girls, and I would talk with the guys, and I wouldn't necessarily tell them everything, but I would say, these things are going to happen, and don't be freaked out. That's natural. This is what God's doing. He's changing you from childhood to adulthood and stuff. And that's sort of what Jesus is doing here. And what that did was it gave our kids confidence in, in our word that what we were going to tell them is true, but it also helped them not to be surprised. And, and that's the same thing here. Jesus tells us about this future tribulation so that when the future begins to unfold, we won't be surprised. It's so we won't lose faith or be discouraged when these things happen. It's so that we will continue on in the mission that God has given to us. It's so that as we stay focused on the plan, that we endure and persevere even amidst tribulation. See, I, I see that even in the church, brothers and sisters, that as our culture is, is moving more and more away from the church, people are becoming more and more anti-church. Not just they don't want to go to church, they're even becoming more and more anti-church. The church is trying to change to get those people back rather than just sticking to the mission that Christ has given to us, knowing that he is the one that will call people to him. You see, if we weren't warned in this way, we could be people who could lose heart. We could become discouraged. We could wonder if Jesus is really coming back. We could wonder if God is really out there at all. As I said earlier, you know, you may be here today and you may be seeing the things that are going on in the world and, you know, with financial matters, with wars and nations and what they're doing with different agendas in our culture. And you could be saying, oh, Lord Jesus, let me off this planet. I just want to go home. And I'll confess before you, I've had those days myself. Where I'm like, Lord, come, Lord Jesus, just take me home. But, but we need to not be discouraged. We need to understand that God is fulfilling His purpose. That God is accomplishing the things that He said He was going through. And although the things around us change, His purposes have not changed. So just think about even some of these specific warnings. You know, when we see false Christ and false prophets rise up, if we're not watching for that, we could be led astray, thinking Christ has returned when He hasn't. But... Yet Jesus tells us here that there will be no doubt when he returns. So we don't have to worry about that. Or when we see political and social unrest, we might be tempted to despair thinking that society is getting worse and that our ministry is ineffective. But Jesus tells us that our ministry must continue on as it was, trusting him. When we see natural disasters such as earthquakes and famines and we see so many people die, we might be tempted to doubt the existence of God, but Jesus has already told us that this is part of God's plan as we're moving to the end of time. And when we're persecuted for being Christians, when the whole world seems to, to be against us, even our families, we shouldn't be surprised 
Jesus just told us that these things would happen. You see, at times, the unrest and the tribulation will feel like it will overwhelm us. But brothers and sisters, it is in those times, especially, that we should pray. That we should pray for God's comfort. That we should pray for God's strength to overcome and to persevere. That's the message of Mark 13. That we walk away as believers encouraged to know that our Lord is about His work. It's not a chapter about calculation and determining the day. It's a chapter about vigilance. And may our vigilance lead to perseverance and perseverance to His glory. Amen? Let's bow our heads as we prayerfully consider these things that we've heard from the Word of God this morning. much unrest, not only in the circumstances around us, but even in the hearts of people. Father, where people are seeking truth, people are claiming to be the truth, there are all kinds of things that are being said that are very anti-God, very anti-Christ type things. We pray, Lord, that you would encourage your church with your word today, that we would not be disheartened in the things that we see, but that our our hope would be steadfastly fixed upon the promises, upon the prophecies that were given by Jesus. To know, Lord, that just in the same way we can tell our kids about puberty and that this is going to happen and it's a good thing and you will make it through this. Lord, in the same way, you are with your church and you are speaking to us. And so let us hear. Oh God, let us take to heart the things that you have said to us this day. Father, I pray for those that don't know you. Lord, those that are struggling. Lord, those that are questioning. That God, that you would draw them to you, to believe into you, to know that you are trustworthy. And that while our world changes, circumstances are, are different sometimes from day to day, your word never changes. The things you said have stood, stood fast and are true that you are trustworthy. Oh Lord, we pray for those that are struggling that they would come to you and find rest. We pray all this in your name and for your glory. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.